I think I can clearly, clearly see why so many investors like to back second and third time and fourth time entrepreneurs, right? Because the, you know, just the number of mistakes that you've already made and the um, the things that you've learned, the network that you've built, the efficiency that you have is just huge, you know, comparatively huge to the first time. I feel like I've played a video game, you know, for, for you know, hundreds of hours and now I can pick up the controller and, and start a new game and be really good at it. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have Ran Fishkin, who is the co-founder of SparkToro, which mission is to make it easier to discover the websites, blogs, podcasts, social accounts, and publications that reach your audience. He also wrote Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world, which is really good, by the way, and we're going to talk about that, and was previously the CEO and co-founder, or still is the co-founder, of Moz. Um, We've had him on before. He's one of the first guests of Growth Everywhere, and he helped make us into what it is now. So very grateful to have Rand back. And probably, I think we've only had less than five people that have returned to the podcast. So uh, you are in good company, Rand. Welcome back. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you for having me, Eric. Yeah. Thanks for being generous with your time. So yeah, why don't you give us a brief kind of recap for people that don't know who you are? Just like, I don't know, I'm sure you get this question all the time. So kind of who is Rand and you know, what is Rand up to right now? Sure. Yeah. So I started a company called Moz. Uh, initially as a blog and then a consultancy, and then it turned into a software company. I ran that company for seven years as CEO and uh, raced a bunch of rounds of venture, grew it from, you know, sort of $0 in software revenue to 30 million. And now Moz is around 50 million in revenue with uh, about 160 or so employees uh, in Seattle, Washington. And I left in February of uh, this year, and started a new company on March first called SparkToro, which, uh, as you mentioned kindly, yep, is focused on helping discover the publications and people that influence your audience. And that uh, that company is still in R and D mode. We expect to have our first product out, uh, hopefully, beginning of next year. Uh, we uh, we raised a very unusual round of funding and open sourced our documents. For that, and a few other companies have used uh, this funding format. It's sort of a unique take on an angel round that allows folks to allows investors to participate in profit sharing uh, in addition to you know the normal sort of exit. And uh, I have been yeah kind of passionately advocating for alternatives to the classic venture model. I think that venture can work fine for very specific kinds of companies. And I think most venture capitalists would agree. But for 99% of companies, uh, new companies, it's the wrong path. And I think we don't have enough funding options, especially in the tech space, that are alternatives to that. So I think that's uh, that's been a personal mission of mine. And I'm also uh, involved in building a 
nonprofit called Project Event Safe uh, that is designed to make events safer for, especially for women, but for everyone, some cross-industry consequences for people who violate codes of conduct at events. I think one of the biggest issues right now is that if you are a uh, if you are an asshole um, yep. who does crappy things at uh, at conferences and events, and you get banned by one event, uh, you can just go ply your evil trade at at other ones. And unfortunately, there are, from my experience, at least a handful of people, mostly men, who um, do these these sorts of terrible things and make make these environments very unfriendly, especially for women. And that uh, that sucks. We want a level playing field. We want uh, as much diversity and inclusion as we can possibly get. And, uh, so this is a, this is a, a project of mine that, that I think a lot of, uh, event organizers and speakers are, are already supporting and should be, should be launching in the next month or two here, depending on some legal aspects. And then the final thing that I am up to is I'm, I'm still on Moz's, uh, board of directors and a shareholder there. And so, uh, cheering for that company to uh, hopefully have a, have a great run ahead of it. Cool. That's wonderful. And I, I do want to talk about the nonprofit and uh, kind of your, your experiences around there in, in, in a little bit. But I, I do remember like talking about the or, or reading the, or actually actually listening, listening through the book that you that you generously read through on Audible. Can you still hear me, by the way? I got a little error message. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. OK, perfect. So, yeah, there was a chapter where you wrote like it doesn't necessarily make sense for most people to raise money because at the end of the day, when you raise, you dilute so much and then it, there's a lot more stress that comes with it. And, you know, your exit is actually can be even worse. And that ties into kind of dovetails into, I guess, the the new kind of let's just call it, a, for lack of a better word, a new system that you put together for, for fundraising. So can you talk a little bit about that chapter and maybe some of the math that goes along with it? So I think the venture model works out well. When you have a company that is worth many hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, in those cases, the dilution to founders doesn't matter too much. Usually, right? You're usually coming out ahead anyway, and you know the difference between oh, I own twelve uh, percent and I own seven percent, so I made seventy million versus one hundred and twenty million. That's not very meaningful of a difference to to a founder, right? That that amount of money is so incredible that it's nearly the same. I think the challenge is for anyone who is creating a company that's going to either A, have an exit that's below, let's say, a couple hundred million dollars, uh, or they're not going to have an exit, right? They're going to have a company that runs profitably, that can you know, kick off money for many years, and then maybe eventually the company shuts down or the company keeps going you know, ad infinitum even after the founders leave. Well, those sorts of companies are wonderful businesses. Absolutely fantastic, right? For human beings, they are just great. For the economy, they're great. For customers and employees, they're great. The only people they don't work for is institutional investors who need to beat the market's returns. And that kind of sucks because we would love to have lots more of those companies out there. We would like to enable many more founders to build those kinds of companies. We want to enable employees to work at them and customers to use them. But we don't have a good system for that, especially in tech right now. And so if you are in one of these two buckets, right, your, your exit's going to be below a couple hundred million dollars, or you are going to operate profitably but not necessarily have an exit, VC doesn't work for you, and there's not a lot of alternatives 
And so I pointed out in the chapter in the book, right, what it's like to bootstrap, for example, use consulting as a way to sort of build a company, which is which is something I obviously did with with Moz back when it was SEO Moz. And that model in many cases, um, and I talked about this in the in the book as well, in many cases, I have, you know, friends and colleagues in the SEO field who founded consulting businesses that probably have never gotten above three or four million dollars a year. And yet they are completely shocked when they find out that their financial situation is much better than mine, right? They go and they say, wait a minute, but, but Moz is a $50 million a year company. And, mm. you know, you own a percentage of that. And it's been profitable for, you know, seven of the 10 years that it's been in operation or 11 years it's been in operation as a venture backed firm. Wait, what, what's going on? How is it possible that I, that I've been able to take more? And, and the answer is because even if you are profitable as a venture-backed firm, you can't kick out that extra money to yourself. You know your your pay is basically capped at whatever um, you know market averages are. And the more of your company you own, the less uh, you get paid. So you know, I remember negotiating with my with my board around my salary. I was sort of like, well, you know, I think this is a little low. And they said, well, it's not low because you own so much of the company. That's not liquid. And, and never has been, right? Right. Never been able to sell that stock. So hopefully someday, maybe it'll turn into something, but it's very likely that, I don't know, economic downturn or uh, the SEO field changes substantially or Moz doesn't execute well and that, that stock becomes worth nothing. Right. So I think these, these are just a lot of things that founders need to consider and that I think we as an industry need to think about too. Did you feel at times, I mean, raising, so I'm assuming before, before, SEO Moz became a software company because you did consulting before, right? After you raised venture funding, did you feel like you kind of became like a prisoner in your own company? Only after I stepped down as CEO. I think, um, you know, I think when I was when I was still CEO, I mean, two things were going on. One, I felt like I, you know, kind of controlled my own destiny in a lot of ways. Even if even if things didn't go well, I I was the one responsible for it, right? And I could impact that, and that that came with a lot of pressure and a lot of stress, but also the freedom and the you know sort of uh, ability to to execute on that. Uh, the other thing that was true was you know what while I was CEO, Moz was growing you know between fifty and one hundred percent year over year every year, and so the growth rate was yeah pretty stupendous, especially for you know in those later years for a company of its size to do that was was fairly incredible, and so. I never had that sort of feeling. But that, then after I stepped down and after the growth rate plateaued, uh, I definitely did. I felt like I can't make a meaningful impact on the things that I think you know should be done here. And I can't, you know, sort of I'm sort of financially constrained here because all my all my equity is tied up here. And I feel like leaving the company would hurt the company and that would harm my equity and hurt a bunch of people that I care about. And I feel like I can't sort of contradict the CEO because that's not, you know, that's not the right thing to do either. You know, as a board member, you're supposed to support the CEO and have their back. And so, yes, I felt very trapped at, at, at the end. I think those last four years were, uh, were a struggle for sure. And, and just to clarify, so when you say step down, this is when you stepped down as CEO and became kind of the, uh, you, had a, you had a different title, right? So the, 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 the four years following that, right? Yeah, yeah. I use the uh, informal title Wizard of Moz. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I just don't want to get it wrong. I thought, you know, was it like magician or is it wizard? So um, I was, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's always going to be the pun. 
Eric, I always go for the pun. <laughs> okay. So when you, I mean, what was that, that, how did you feel, right? Because I think it's really important to communicate that because you've been, Moz is this thing that's been around for 11 years or so. So having to, you know, seal your lips and kind of, you know, being in that position, how did it feel for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that you described it well when you said trapped, right? It, it, it is this feeling of constraints without control, right? So I think in a lot of ways, I felt a responsibility and an obligation to make the company the best it could be, but without the influence and control to be able to execute on that vision. And I think, you know, that's something, right, that managers and leadership teams talk about all the time with their employees, right, is that they need to feel like, A, you have direction, and B, you have the freedom and control to influence and to execute on the things that you're supposed to do. Right. And, and when, you, when you take away those things one or both of those things, people get, yeah, extremely frustrated and, and often execute poorly too. Yeah. I mean, you were, I mean, you still are basically are, at least in my opinion, the the face of Moz. So you talked about kind of before you stepped down, it was growing, you know, 50 to hundred percent year, year over year. So what happened? Uh, how did those numbers look after you stepped down? Like whatever you're open to share? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I think that one thing to be clear on is that when I stepped down, uh, that was when Moz's growth rate was slowing. So that last year, you know, we've been 100% year over year for six years, six or seven years. And then the year I stepped down, we were, sorry, the year just before I stepped down, what was that, 2013, we grew maybe a little over 50%. Um, so that growth rate was slowing. And I think a big big part of that was this uh, this product direction, new product direction that I had taken us in. And that, you know, I sort of came to regret by the end of that year and and decided was a was a a bad plan and then when i stepped down in 2014 i think we you know we didn't we didn't quite change direction quickly enough but we eventually got there i think by maybe 2017 we were back on sort of a you know seo is the is the only product that Moz is offering path. And that was, you know, those were some painful years and, and growth slowed dramatically. And I think over those next four years, we had competitors who really, you know, sort of took the market from us uh, very effectively. So, you know, in 2013, you would have said, I think 80, 90% of people in the, in the field would have said, Moz is the leader in SEO software. Right. Um, certainly for SMBs. And in, you know, 2017, you would say, well, Moz is one of the probably, you know, they're they're one of the top four or five, but they're definitely not the leader, and certainly not the runaway leader that they were four years before. So I think those are those are things that harm the growth rate, right? Taking our eye off the ball, not focusing, not sort of doubling down on that market and executing well. I think our marketing was always superb, but our, you know, our product, both direction and then our execution on engineering really struggled you know we had a, a terrible crappy link index for gosh probably five or six years and it was only only in what was that april or may of this year that it finally became sort of world class again so it was yeah it was it was a, a hefty struggle Right. And by the way, everyone, so Rance, actually, I mean, if you listen to audiobook, it's literally him talking through the whole thing and talking through each and every one of these stories, fully transparent. Everything's out there, leaves nothing, no stones unturned. And so I've never really, you know, read or listened to um, a guy that's been so transparent and openly transparent with, um, you know, all the stuff that's going on. So thank you for that. 
So the, the, the new term sheet, uh, I don't even know if you want to call it a term sheet, but what you have set up for that you set up for your angel investors, like how is that different than typical terms someone else might, you know, see from like angels or VCs? Yeah, yeah. So I think most angel deals that are done in tech these days are, in fact, not even most. 95 plus percent, right? Just overwhelming majority are designed to eventually convert or eventually be successful by virtue of raising a venture round, right? So they're almost always the convertible notes or the, you know, the YC safe or other sorts of formats that, that you'll see on AngelList and in, you know, almost every deal. And the idea behind all of those is that the investors basically, you know, are looking for companies that seek hyper growth, right? Meaning grow as fast as you can, spend quickly to get growth quickly, try not to die. But if you do die, you, your company, right? If your company dies, that is okay, because our model is similar to venture investors, you know, put money into 100 companies, hope that five of them sort of return the whole fund and the other 95, meh, doesn't really matter what happens to them. So that model can work fine. Obviously, has has worked fine. I think that for you know about twenty percent, maybe it's a little less than that. Maybe it's fifteen percent, fifteen to twenty percent of uh, of venture firms be, end up beating the market. The other ones don't, but because of the long lag time, it's really tough to see. And so, you know, a lot of them stay in business despite not being able to return they promised to their LPs. Um, so you know, it, it works okay for some people. The term sheet that SparkToro offered basically said, hey, what if we build a company that is substantially lower risk, meaning that you know it's not 5 out of 100 that succeed and another 10 that do mediocre and the remaining 85 end up going under. It is a model where we think you know, greater than 50% odds that this company will survive and be profitable the question is just whether this is a company that you know that's going to do three or four million dollars a year, or thirty or forty million dollars a year, or three hundred or four hundred million dollars a year. And we don't know that going in. We know that there is some market here. We don't know how big it is, but we are not going to limit ourselves to only making our investors money if we have a giant market and an incredibly huge win. We're going to say, hey, if SparkToro is a three million dollar a year company that costs a million and a half to run, you can benefit, right? You investor can make a lot of money over the course of the next 10 or 15 years as SparkToro takes that other million or million and a half and spits it out as profit. And it doesn't need to be acquired to make you money. And so our investors basically get, well, they put in 1.3 million. Mm -hmm. And the first 1.3 million that we make in profit at the company goes directly back to them. So they get 1x their investment back before any other distribution happens. And then the distribution after that 1.3 million shifts to a pro rata model. So you know, if you own 2% of the company, you get 2% of the, the profits after that. And that is, that is paid out annually. And then the, the company sort of has the option of you know, reinvesting some portion or all of that in growth or you know, re paying it all out in profits. But there's obviously incentives on our side to at least pay our investors back their, their 1x. And then just like a normal venture deal, everyone gets their pro rata, the greater of their pro rata or their initial investment back on a sale of the company. Okay. 
Great. And th- th- that 2% that you're just talking about, so, so f- let's just use that as an example. How long does that last in perpetuity or, or, or until the sale? Okay. Yeah, in perpetuity or until sale. Got it. Okay. Great. So uh, I guess, you know, putting something together like this, um, at least in my eyes, seems fairly kind of convoluted. How did you go about doing it all? Was it you? Did you hire someone? What happened? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we worked with an attorney here in Seattle, Joe Wallen from uh, Kearney Badley Spellman. And Joe is, yeah, Joe's uh, sort of well known in the venture and startup space as uh, a very innovative attorney. He uh, he helped write the crowdfunding laws for Washington State and has helped with uh, numerous transactions. And so when we got together with him, you know, he was excited about an alternative to this as well. And in fact, was excited enough that he's one of our investors too. Yeah, it seems like a really good deal for the, the investors. Like it's a it's a slam dunk. You know, it doesn't necessarily like your company doesn't necessarily need to be like one of those. You know, swing for the uh, swing for the fences, home run, Facebooks of the world. And yeah, it's that. It seems like you know, I I, I do the deal immediately. <laughs> it, it it was odd to me that that it had that it didn't exist prior. Right, that something like this wasn't already commonplace because it it struck me as not tremendously innovative, just sort of common sense. Like, hey, if you ask yourself the question, what if this company isn't a moonshot, doesn't make you know hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, how can we as investors benefit from it? The answer quickly and obviously becomes do it this way. Right. And so... But when I look at you, like let's say for on the company side, if I'm running the company, the what what's, what's like the main upside for you? Because you have to give you know the profits back, so they get their money back pretty quickly, and then they get upside on the sale. They get you know upside during you know the operation. What what's in it for you? I mean, so we uh, we own the rest of the company, right? So I think we we gave away a standard ish, uh, maybe twenty two percent, right, of the company uh, is owned by investors, but the remaining seventy eight percent is owned by Casey and I. And so we we participate tremendously in those profits as well, right? So we have an incentive for SparkToro to make money and to be profitable because that's how we get paid. And when we get paid, our investors also get paid. So there's, you know, once we pay them back the 1.3 million, right, we, we, we can start, Casey and I can start participating in profit sharing as well. Right, without having to wait. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also did something unique where uh, we capped our salaries at sort of the Seattle software engineer average, you know, according to like pay scale or whatever. And we cannot raise those salaries until and unless we pay back the 1.3 million. Mm. So again, sort of another protection for investors. That's great. Yeah, I, I'm going to check it out again because right now we're raising our angel round for for a, uh, a SaaS thing that we have going on. Um, might talk to you about it later. So I do want to talk about Spark Toro. So Spark Toro, right now, I mean, what was the impetus behind this, and how does it benefit people? Yeah, the, I mean, the impetus was really that as a marketer, what I saw was tons and tons of people in companies saying, "Hey, we we can't really figure out where our audience is and how to target them, so we're just going to throw tons of money at Facebook and Google." And let them take care of the targeting. And that can work, but those marketplaces are extremely competitive. And as a result, the dollars that you throw at them generally have very poor ROI, right? Like you, you know, you spend whatever, four dollars a click with Google Ads, and maybe you make four dollars and ten cents, you know, right? Right. So you're your margin is just razor, razor thin because everybody else is bidding and, and competing. Same thing's true with Facebook ads, of course. And I think in, in these cases, 
uh, there's not a lot of attention being paid to organic opportunities, right? So if your audience is listening to, you know, Eric Sue's podcast, and by being mentioned by Eric or by being, being a guest on his podcast, you know, you could reach these, I don't know how many listeners you have, but let's say it's a thousand people who regularly listen to your show and 700 of them are, are pretty darn good targets for your product, your market. Gosh, that is, that's so much more worthwhile, right? To try and, you know, talk to Eric and be a guest on his podcast or sponsor it and, you know, have a message there or, you know, be on his website or whatever it is, right? Such a better uh, marketing opportunity than 99% of stuff out there. But how would you ever figure out that your audience listens to his podcast? Right. It's just, it's just impossible, right? And like today it is nearly impossible. The only way to really do it is to do what PR firms do, which is run these, you know, $50,000 surveys where they go and take a sample set of, you know, a couple thousand people who are in your audience and they try and survey them about their habits. And hopefully those surveys are accurate. Hopefully they can find enough people and they're extremely costly. And we thought this is dumb. Software should be able to do this. You should be able to type in, you know, I want to reach chefs in Los Angeles, or I want to reach, you know, interior designers on the West Coast, or I want to reach authors of business books. And software should come back to you and say, here's the events that they go to. Here are the people they follow on Twitter. Here are the blogs and websites that they read. Here are the mainstream media publications they pay attention to. Here's the podcasts they listen to. Here's the YouTube channels they subscribe to, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then you can go do all your whatever kind of marketing or targeting or advertising you want to do, organic or paid. You can go do that once you have that set. That's the idea. Cool. I love it. So is the idea, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I just go in, uh, I go into SparkToro, I type maybe, you know, like, let's say content marketing, for example, and then I can find all, this, all the different categories. Like here's the podcast, you know, here's the different blogs out there. Is that the idea? That, that is exactly, you are describing our UI. So I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Exactly right. You go to, you know, so you might say, hey, I think that our software targets content marketers, right? And so we're building a, a piece of SaaS software for content marketers. Let, let's uh, type in content marketers and then we'll say, hey, we, we want to start in our hometown. So let's start with the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. What do content marketers in the Bay Area pay attention to? Right. Or what events do they go to? Okay, great. Let's get a booth at that event. Right. Let's pitch to speak at that event. Yeah, those kinds of things. Yeah, sounds like a must-have, at least in my opinion. Uh, so, how how do you plan on? Maybe you haven't figured this out yet, but how do you plan on charging for this? Yeah, so we. This is another thing that's nice about not being uh, not being venture backed. I think we are actually going to offer two kinds of pricing because we a lot of the things we've learned in our customer interviews are that many many people only do this maybe once a year or once every you know six months project like this. And so I think we're going to have one-time pricing and subscription pricing. So, you know, if you're a professional marketer and you help lots of companies, you do this regularly, uh, or you're on a big in-house team who does this regularly, great. You want to you want to subscribe and you'll save money that way and have sort of all these things that you regularly can do with your account and save your lists, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a, hey, I'm an entrepreneur, I just need to do this once, there'll be there'll probably be one-time pricing. For you, and we're going to be we're going to be relatively low priced. Our our goal is to be a lot like Moz was, very accessible for everyone, rather than exclusively, you know, sort of enterprise. Let's make a deal, you know, thirty k a year type of thing. We're we're probably going to be more like the hundred to few hundred bucks a month type deal. Great. Okay. I mean, with Moz, I mean, because you spent so long, you know, building up that audience, and well, I I guess maybe my question this time is: is it? Do you feel like it's 
easier this time around because you've got the experience and you have, you know, a following? Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that <laughs> I think I can clearly, clearly see why so many investors like to back second and third time and fourth time entrepreneurs, right? Because the, you know, just the number of mistakes that you've already made and the um, the things that you've learned, the network that you've built, the efficiency that you have is just huge, you know, comparatively huge to the first time. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like I've played a video game, you know, forever, you know, hundreds of hours, and now I can pick up the controller and, and start a new game and be really good at it. I hope anyway, fingers crossed. Yeah, I, I love that analogy, uh, the whole concept around leveling up. So I, you know, coming from a gaming background, but mm -hmm. so the, the, the book itself, can you talk about, you know, the, the book in terms of what you're doing to kind of market right now? You, I know you mentioned, um, and I guess this kind of ties into events, but yeah, maybe we'll just start with that first. Like, how are you marking the book right now? What has it done for you? Yeah. So the, the book is a much more a labor of love than a uh, financially motivated and focused thing. I, one thing that's true and kind of odd about the world of publishing is that you basically get paid in advance and very rarely do you, you know, sell out of that advance, certainly not in the first few years. And so my, you know, my incentive to like sell 10 extra copies or hundred extra copies is not huge, but most of what I'm doing with the book is because I, I seriously hope that it can help people. Right. Like I, this is a book I wrote, for people like me, who I, I I hoped you know would, it's the kind of thing that I wish I could have handed to myself you know ten or fifteen years ago, and said like, hey, read this. Your life will be a lot better and less painful, especially your professional life, uh, if you take these lessons to heart. And so and so I did that. And I I think that um, the you know as far as as getting the book out there, events have been a big one. Uh, certainly, a lot of events you know buy the book and then give it away to attendees uh, when I speak there. I have been doing um, yeah, a substantial number of, uh, of podcasts and interviews and those kinds of things. And then I think a lot of it is word of mouth, to be honest. You know, people, I see po people post sort of every day on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram, you know, like, hey, I'm reading Lost and Founder on this plane trip or on this trip. And I'm, uh, you know, here's, here's sort of my thoughts on it. And that's been very cool to see. Yeah, it's 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 crazy because I, I there's a list of entrepreneurs that I, I follow on Twitter. So I, I made that list, and you're on it too. But it's not you retweeting; it's it's other entrepreneurs I see retweeting it. And I think someone said like you know they cried after reading or cried during this. Maybe maybe you retweeted that one, but um, you know it's just seeing stuff like that. That's when you know it's kind of quote unquote working, right? Now, when you're promoting the book, uh, you said you're doing events, speaking. Are you going to these events? And like, let's say they reach out to you. They're like, Rand, we want you to speak. Is your deal with them saying, hey, you know, I'll speak if you buy X amount of books or how does it work? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So this was basically what my publisher asked, I think, as part of the, the deal. They said like, hey, you know, if you're, uh, you're going to sign this deal with us, can you make it such that your speaking requirements include a minimum number of, of purchased books? And so that's how... That's how I've basically been doing things in Weld for probably the next year or two. You know, that that's based on I think mostly based on distance from Seattle, which essentially means time that it takes me to, you know, get to this whatever city it is and then get back home. You know, so if it's uh if it's not in North America, I think it's, you know, hundreds of books, you know, five hundred plus books or something. And if it's uh you know, Portland, Oregon, it's more like 200 bucks. That kind of thing. How much is each book? Like 20 bucks? I think, so they have this structure, Penguin Random House works with like a um, bulk business book seller. I think you get something like 50% off when you buy in 
in bulk, depending on the amount, maybe even more than that. Um, so it's a yeah variable amount with, with bulk purchases. Got it. So it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. You're, you said if it's like in Portland, it's 200, and then maybe if you're like you know traveling to Europe or something, it might be like a thousand bucks. Yeah, some in those ranges exactly. Yeah. Okay. And how many? I guess how many events are they expecting you to do over this 24 month period? Oh gosh. You know, I'm not sure I've ever asked them, but uh, I, I think they assumed that my historical average, which was usually about uh, two to three events a month, would hold. And, and so far, that's been true. Wow. I didn't know you were doing two to three events uh, a month. So how are you? I, I know, uh, you know, you've, you've got a wife and everything. How, how are you managing all that? Are you taking her with you? Like, how, how, does, how do you manage two to three events and uh, running Spark Toro? Yeah, I mean, it depends. So part, part of it is I am going to a lot of the events where you know, my customers will be. Mm-hmm. So because people in the web marketing world and, and technology world tend to invite me, this is great for me. I, I basically go to these events. I'm going to an event next week in, in the UK. And I'm going to be sitting down with a bunch of people and walking them through the wireframes that our designer just did for SparkToro and, you know, getting feedback that way. So events are great for me for SparkToro and they're also good for the book. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a win-win. And then, yeah, I'm, Geraldine comes with me uh, less than she did while I was at Moz, but you know it depends on where I'm going. So, you know, next week I'm going to be going to Brighton. Uh, she is not coming. Um, in November I'm going to Milan in Italy, and of course she's definitely coming to that one. <laughs> so, yeah, good so, deal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cool. Great. So let's talk about, I mean, now, now this kind of, you know, segues well into the, the nonprofit. So can you kind of speak a little more, maybe give an example or two and maybe you don't have to name names, but like, what have you seen? Because I, I have to assume that you've seen these things because A, you've gone to so many events and also like the event that used to help put on, uh, MozCon, um, you've probably seen a lot of this stuff. And I, I personally haven't. So I'm just curious to learn a little more about, you know, what you've seen examples, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So I'll t- I'll tell you the uh, the story that kicked this off, which I'll be writing about when the project launches. But um, basically, story was uh, this is maybe a little more than eighteen months ago. I was at a conference. There was a woman at this conference as well. She uh, I, and I, I obviously found out about this later. But um, she had an experience where she had you know gone out with some of the speakers and other attendees after the event for for dinner and drinks, and they. Uh, got back to the hotel and this, this one sort of creepy guy was, yeah, following her a little bit, um, ended up assaulting her, chasing her, you know, she escaped, but I think, I think it's pretty clear that, that it would have been an attempted rape, uh, Um, if she had not escaped from this guy. And he was a speaker at the event. She reported the incident to the organizers, but decided not to, you know, get the police involved and, and press charges. And I think we can you know, clearly see from all the crazy shit that's happening now, how, how horribly unfairly women are, are treated when they do report things. But yeah, so she reported it to the event organizers, the event organizers said, okay, well, you know, we'll get the hotel tapes and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll take care of this. And she was like, good, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I'm just going home. Mm. And she did. And then three or four months later, she gets an email, a promotional email from the event saying, hey, that speaker who assaulted you is our keynote for next year. Wow. I mean, just horrible, right? Horrible. And um, and I I know all the parties involved, right? I know the organizers because I was speaking at this event and was invited. I know this... uh, I know this asshole. I, I, you know, I, um, I didn't really know the the woman previously, but, but I do now. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, I, I called up the event organizers after she emailed me and, and basically said like, Hey, I know what you guys did and I'm, I, I'm going to burn your shit down mm-hmm. unless you make this right. And, and I think that, you know, that, that, that threat was sort of, uh, very effective. They, they issued an apology. They uninvited the speaker. They put into place of co- a new code of conduct. They change up the, the people who are on the, the board of the event. Yeah. So from this experience, I, I started having a conversation, right? I would, I would tell this story with names anonymized, of course, uh, to other folks and say, God, can you believe this thing happens? Unbelievable. And, uh, and a lot of guys like yourself, right. And like myself that I talked to would be like, yeah, God, that's crazy. can't believe that happened. Wow. What a, you know, what an anomaly. And every woman I talked to said, oh yeah, that happens pretty much every time. Wow. Right. Like every event I go to, every event I go to, I have to worry about that. And I don't know a single woman who's, who hasn't had it happen to. And I just, you know, my eyes just, that's crazy. We're completely crazy. You know, if you wonder why, why is, why is it, why are the tech and marketing industries so dominated by, uh, by men? Well, my God, you know, I think about how much events and networking has done for me in my career, right? How much that's advanced, you know, where I've been able to get to right? and who the people in power are, right? Who are all my investors? Who are, who are all the VCs? Who are all the CEOs? Long story short, just this is, this is a pervasive problem and, in having these conversations with, uh, especially with a lot of women in in the field, I learned that us, thankfully, right. The good news is that a small number of people seem to be disproportionately responsible for this. Right. So when, you know, when a woman would tell me, Hey, this happened to me and, you know, I would say, Oh, and you know, it's terrible. And who, who was it? I would hear the same names over and over again. Mm. And that made me realize that there is a solution, right? It's not that Thank God, not every guy is terrible, but if we can get rid of a few of these bad apples, I think we can we can solve a lot of the problem. And one of the problems seems to be that many of these guys have been banned by an event where they have you know, violated a code of conduct and, and been reported. But unfortunately, they just go to other ones. Yep, doesn't carry over. Yeah, because it's not like event organizers talk to each other. And so... Although it is a complex legal structure uh, to be able to do this, there is there is a way to legally uh, provide that information and share that information across events. They they basically have to include some lines in in their um, speaker agreements and in their uh, attendee agreements, and then they they participate in this 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 program together, and then they share a database of you know essentially just like a single event would have a record of hey we. You know, we received a complaint, we investigated the complaint, we took action or not based on the complaint, and here's the date, here's the person that was reported. Uh, that information can be shared across events, and that's the goal of Project Event Safe. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, we're going to work towards wrapping up, but I mean, the, the fact that you're using your influence, and you've taught people a lot about SEO, about content marketing, how that builds influence, but you're using your influence. And I have to assume there's not really much upside for you other than doing the right thing here. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this will cost me a lot of time and, and has cost me already a lot of money, but um, I don't know if I could sleep at night if I didn't do something about it. I mean, now, now, once you know, right, you, you got to take action. Oh, 100%. And I'm glad it's you doing it. Um, how do people find out about, oh, I guess, what's the URL for this project? It will be, I think it will be at projecteventsafe.org, but um, it's going to be 
I would say probably another month or two at least until it's uh, until it's ready and launched. So I will um, I will definitely do some amplification once once the project has launched, and you know, looking forward to hopefully getting a lot of a lot of events and speakers and hopefully sponsors as well participating and saying you know basically like you know we won't you know we we won't support events that aren't part of this. I love it. Cool. Well, let me know what I can do to help on that end. Um, and so final question for you, before we were talking, we were on video um, and it doesn't have to be one of the books, but you have, you have a ton of books in the background. And I just want to know what is one must read book you'd recommend to people aside from the wonderful one that you wrote and released this year? Ooh, gosh. I mean, it depends on what you are trying to do. There have been a bunch that I've liked recently. So I, if you are, if you are building a new product and you're trying to test it out. I really like uh, Jake Knapp and the Google Venture guys' book, uh, Sprint. Mm. I think that even if you don't do exactly the way they do it, you'll you'll learn a ton from that. That's a that's a great great book. The Patty McCord's powerful. Patty McCord, the the chief people officer at at Netflix. Ah, uh, I just picked that one up. Yeah, yeah, she wrote it's a, the red one, right? Yep, she wrote a great book that I've been, I'm not all the way through, but I've been uh, very much enjoying. Um, I also like Kim Scott's Radical Candor a lot, which I know is very popular, but I learned a lot there too. Cool. Wonderful. So we'll drop those into the show notes as well as your book as well. But Rand, what are the best ways for people to find you online? Because you've got multiple things going on. Uh, yeah. So let's see. Um, I am most active on Twitter where I'm at Rand Fish. And uh, certainly you can check out you know my blogs and uh and what I'm doing at sparktoro.com. Thanks again for doing this round. This has been a good second conversation. Those of you that haven't listened to the first one, go ahead and check it out. It's one of the first 10 episodes of Growth Everywhere. Thanks again, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Eric. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.